be um, a brief snapshot in, in Jewish history. So we'll see how far we could get. What do you guys say about that? Okay. Okay, so first of all, um, this is the Bar and Bat Mitzvah class, and the goal of the class is to give like a framework or a structure for all things Jewish. It's, a, it's an overview, it's a sketch of the major core concepts of, of, of Judaism. Uh, now, why would you include history? History seems like a nice... It's nice art. It's like a nice thing that you could study, but how does it benefit uh, and how, what's its place in any exploration of core topics in Judaism? That's a good question. So I, I, I like uh, to look at it from a few different angles. I think, first of all, you know, history is important to learn because, um, yeah, go ahead. Those. The yeah, that's what they always say. They say that uh, <laughs> those who don't learn the lessons of history are bound to repeat them. And, in Jewish history, there's many, many patterns that, are, that emerge again and again. And we can look at the situation that we have today, and we compare it to, let's say, what happened in the first century, the Common Era in Israel. And it's literally identical. Tomorrow, the Israeli mm-hmm. populace are on the poll, mm-hmm. and it's uh, the factionalism and sectarianism and schisms and different groups and the different ideas and different themes that are going to the polls tomorrow mm-hmm. are literally the same exact, literally the same exact as existed two, 2,000 years ago. And the lessons uh, of, of, of what happened, what transpired uh, in yesteryear, if we transpose them to today, it could be very valuable for us. So that's number one. Number two, I think we talked about, use, uh, about history as being the battleground or the battle testing station for ideas. You know, if I told you 100 years ago, uh, there's, you know, two major economic philosophies out there. There's communism and capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you would probably have the proponents of either one split 50-50. Amongst the Jews, there were many more communists than, than capitalists. That was a legitimate argument 100 years ago. Today, it's not. You know why? Because mm-hmm. history has made it clear, the past 100 years of history has made it clear, one system works, for better or for worse. Uh, for the most part, it works, and one of them is an absolute failure. There's a reason why the uh, Soviets had to have their soldiers keeping people in while the United States has struggled to keep people out. You know? mm-hmm. If it's just a, 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 a haven for the people, you wouldn't have to force everyone to uh, put guns to them, make sure they don't escape. So that's the idea. We talk about you know, Jewish history. There's so much detail and so much nuance and so many different ideas that are presented uh, throughout Jewish history and are revisited again and again. And the more we gain a, 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 an insight into the various ideas that have been tested, the better off we are at judging current ideas and the likelihood of success. Uh, for example, just a contemporary example. So uh, we don't like talking about different groups amongst Jews, but it's a reality. We all know, you Google it, you know, the different groups. There's conservative Jews and reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews or Reconstructionist Jews and this Jews. Every different kind of Jew to find on the internet, right? Just go to Wikipedia. Different kinds of Jews. You'll find, you know, 78 different options. Now, that's not a new idea. It's not a new idea. Go back to 2,000 years, you have the Sadducees, uh, you have well, the Pharisees, you have the Essenes, you have uh, a group that uh, we find a lot in Jewish literature, not so much in secular literature, uh, the group called the uh, Baitusim. Uh, we have a groups called the Sicarium and the Brionim, different groups, and many of them purported or, or argued or posited or postulated for, you know, different ideas. You know, the Sadducees or the Hellenists, the Jewish Hellenists, right. uh, they have a lot of ideas that were hugely popular. The Sadducees were a, an enormous faction amongst the people. Uh, where are they now? 
they're gone. Why are they gone? Because those ideas are flawed, mm-hmm. and flawed ideas eventually uh, filter out. Uh, and we see even you know even uh, even 150 years ago in France. So the early Reform Judaism is not what Reform Judaism is today. Early Reform Judaism, they had the synagogue open on Sunday. The rabbis dressed like priests. There was absolutely no Hebrew or any sort of reference to any Torah. It was completely indistinguishable from, from a church. Read about it. Uh, in Germany and France in the late 19th century. Uh, so that was an idea that was very popular. In the 19th century, you have a quarter of a million Jews converting to Christianity. Uh, the worst century out of all 38 centuries of Jewish history uh, for Jewish continuity, for Jewish vibrance, for Jewish growth is the 19th century, by far, by far and away. Uh, now, the reasons why, I want a big, big picture here, we're getting a little off topic, of course, we'd like to do that here. Big picture reasons why uh, is because you have global movements, so global shifts uh, in, in society and culture, and you have, the, uh, you have the emancipation of the European Jews, and you have the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. and you have uh, just a, you know, the full manifestation of humanism that began in the Renaissance. And uh, lo and behold, lots of Jews say, you know what, uh, we can't keep our pious and our Judaism and all that. We'll be different, we won't be, we won't be accepted into society. So some of the Jews say, let's meet them halfway. Some of the Jews say, you know what, we can only integrate into society if we're we become Christians. Thus, you have someone like Benjamin Disraeli became Prime Minister of England, converted, baptized. You have someone like Karl Marx, same thing. Uh, and even Theodore Herzl, his kids, two of his kids uh, and one of his grandkids were baptized as Christians. Uh, and that's a, obviously a terrible tragedy. But it is, a, it is an idea that was not uh, brand new. It was tried before and it failed and it was tried again and it failed again. That's an example of a big uh, theme or big shift, a big directional shift that a mass of Jews have taken. Uh, yet if they had a deep understanding of Jewish history, uh, they, wouldn't, they would know that it was bound to fail. It's clear, it's evident. Uh, and we, we find that again and again. Uh, additionally, we could talk about um, you know, the lessons uh, that we take from the mistakes of Jewish history, we try not to do them again. So that's another reason why it's very important to do that. Now, in the Torah, we find a lot of stories. The word Torah means teachings or instructions. Thus, anything that falls under the category of Torah must, in some capacity or other, be a a teaching, being instructive. Well, the 613 mitzvahs, direct commandments, wear tefillin, have a mezuzah, eat matzah. Those are the ones we're familiar with. But if you open up the Torah, you know, if you open up the Genesis, what do you find? How many mitzvahs do you find in Genesis? Who knows? Uh, How many mitzvahs are there in Genesis? The book of Genesis. First out of the five books of the Torah. Out of 613, who wants to venture a guess? Third. That's the guy's 13, six hundred of the rest of them? In fact, well, there's only three mitzvahs. Wow. There's only three mitzvahs in Genesis. Those three are be fruitful and multiply, circumcision, and not eating the Gedanach the Sayataka. Those are three mitzvahs in Genesis. You have an entire book. In fact, Genesis is the largest of the five books of the Torah. Mm-hmm. And it's called Torah. Thus, it's supposed to be instructive. It's supposed to be instructive. And we find only three instructions. What gives? Rabbi, you said Torah is instructions. Where are the instructions? So the answer is, is that the dialogues and the narratives and the stories of Adam, mm-hmm. of Abraham, of Jacob, of Noah, of Joseph, of, of, of Isaac, 
of Joseph's uh, interactions with the Egyptians, all those stories are instructive. We have to glean the stories from them. Uh, Nachmanis, the one of the uh, paramount commentators in the Torah, says, Ma'ase avot banim. He says it again and again and again. Stories of our ancestors are directives to the children. The stories in Genesis are not merely stories that we need to tell our kids, but to sleep at night. <laughs> Rather, they are lessons that are uh, entrenched, ensconced, and embedded in Jewish consciousness. And they have provided much insight and illumination to Jewish practice throughout the millennia. In fact, Talmud tells us that even, you know, 1,500 years after Jacob, 1,500 years after Jacob is dead, the rabbis, a, a coalition of rabbis are going to Rome to negotiate with, uh, uh, with one of the, em- the, the emperors. I don't remember who it was. It might have been uh, a Domitian or it might have been uh, Nerva or it might have been uh, one of those other clowns in the, in the end of the first century of the Common Era. And what did they do before they went to negotiate to, uh, to lobby the Romans? What did they do? What did they study? How to win friends and influence people? The Art of War by Sun Tzu? Well, what did they study? They studied Jacob's encounter with Esau in the middle of Genesis. Jacob is coming back from his... Uh, his 21-year stay by his father-in-law. He hears, he has messengers that tell him that Esau is coming towards him with, a, uh, with an army of 400 men and how he goes about preparing and his contingency plans and his taking the people and splitting them into different groups and his prayer and his prepare for war and also sending gifts. Right? All that was studied 1,500 years later uh, before the rabbis made a trip to Rome. It's an example. But that's only, that, that, that's, only, that's only one. You have Abraham, the lessons that we take from Abraham. How much literature has been written about all the nuances and the subtleties of Abraham's behavior, mm-hmm. Abraham's faith, Abraham's kindness, Abraham's benevolence, Abraham's beseeching the Almighty on behalf of the wicked, member, uh, uh, the wicked city of Stom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. or I found some Hebrew, Amora. All that is lessons for us. So we started we study history it's also about that. It's also about taking lessons uh, from our great, uh, our great uh, forbearers, the great Jewish leaders of, of yesteryear. Uh, lastly, this is perhaps most important. We view history as an exercise in faith. Repeat that again, guys. We view history as an exercise in faith. How so? According to Jewish philosophy, the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, is not merely defined as a creator. In fact, if you say, I believe in God, full faith, right? According to Judaism, that has to encompass some more than just the idea that God created the heaven and earth. If someone says, you know what? I believe God created everything. Everything. From the uh, most simple organisms to all the galaxies, everything. However, God went and pushed the button autopilot. And now he's playing uh, you know, War of Warcraft. God, right? God disassociated himself from humanity. Of course, him, well, you don't have faith. You, you, know, you, you don't believe in what we're talking about. It means We mean very specifically we're talking about God. We don't just mean, you know, uh, oh, I believe in God, whatever that means. You know, what if God means, uh, I don't know, it can mean anything, right? It's just a word. What is, what is the definition? So we say creator, creator of all. 
right? Nothing, nothing self-created, right? Besides for uh, the, everything was born out of God's willing it to exist. Mm-hmm. Number one, sustainer. Mm-hmm. Nothing can outlast or nothing can live on its own. Thus, uh, as an analogous to a lamp, so a lamp's illuminated, but you pull the plug, illumination oh. ends. So there's this f- constant flow of, of electricity that keeps it, that keeps it illuminated. Mm-hmm. What happens if you pull the electricity? Illumination is gone. Similarly, God is constantly giving us, nurturing us, sustaining us with energy, with life, and thus we continue to exist. He withholds that for a second, we cease to exist. So God's like, so to speak, recreating us every second. Uh, we also say God's a supervisor. God's involved with us on an individual level. If someone says, I don't believe in that, then they're renating or they're repudiating on a major principle of Jewish theology, of Jewish faith. So back to history for a second here, guys. I feel like I'm losing the crowd here. Back to history. We say history is God's handiwork. God manipulates history. God has, there's a course of action that God's trying to uh, uh, evoke or bring out through, throughout history. There's a plan, there's a master plan, and God manipulates and supervises and intercedes uh, with the happenings of the world to bring about that, uh, that desired outcome. Uh, thus, when we, for example, just to shoot ahead 1,500 years, we talk about the first exile, right? Everyone knows there's two temples, right? Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed by who? Incorrect. Incorrect. That's right. Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. So the Romans, you said the Romans? Romans, uh, Persians, they were the Purim story. They were afterwards. After Babylonians. That's right. Right. We have the Assyrians before that. Right, Syrians, uh, Babylonians, Persians, and we have the Greeks, and then we have the Romans, the Byzantines. And you do with that Shemitah year during that time? Oh, Shemitah is something else. I mean, during that time. Yeah, they have, of course they had Shemitah, of course. I mean, they Shemitah even today. For those 70 years because they didn't know the language. Yeah, yo, yeah. You know, See, good stuff the there. Language. Good stuff there. Yeah. Frederick. <laughs> I'm not going to pronounce it wrong. So, so, uh, so we find. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar is coming to destroy the temple, uh, the Babylonians. Uh, Babylon, Babylon, by the way, is a modern-day Iraq. Mm-hmm. And uh, he initially comes and takes 10,000 of the best and brightest of the Jewish people mm-hmm. and exiles them to Babylon. And the Jewish people at the time were freaking out. Can you imagine all the doctors and lawyers mm-hmm. and all the accountants and all the rabbi, all the good, like all the, you know, the creme de la creme, the, the high society, they're all gone, exile. And what happened? You have a temple here. You got no one to run the show. All the best invites are, are, are gone. Mm-hmm. Ten years before the, before, before the temple being destroyed. Ten years later, temple's destroyed. Mm-hmm. The entire mass of the people are taken exile uh, to uh, to Babylon, that's what you have there. You know, there's that uh, we're sitting on the rivers of Babylon and we're crying. That famous, uh, that famous verse, right? How can we sing the song of God <laughs> on foreign right. land? Right. That's when that happens. Mm-hmm. But they come to Babylon. What do they find in Babylon? Mm-hmm. They find a fully functioning, vibrant Jewish society. There's schools and there's shuls and there's mikvahs and there's kosher butcher shops. Everything. Why? Because those, those ten thousand came and reestablished a Jewish community in Babylon. So now when the entire masses of Jews are absorbed mm-hmm. into Babylon, they don't come there and they don't, they don't, they don't encounter 
a community that's not ready for them, and then they're at risk for assimilating. So in Jewish, in Jewish, the Talmud says this is an example of God interfering and intervening in Jewish history to preserve the Jewish people. God knew that the temple is doomed. Mm-hmm. That was already a given. The temple was the temple was uh, a, a, an edifice of wood and stone, mm-hmm. but God's presence was had left had left from it. To the naked eye, it looked like it was in the full glory, but God had left already. It was just a matter of time. What's going to happen to the Jewish people once they once they once they're sent into exile? What's going to be with them? Are they going to disappear? So let's let's take another contemporary example. What happened in the nineteen in the 1880s, The first major mass migration from German and Russian Jews to the United States. So they come to the United States, what do they find? They find a land with absolutely no Jewish infrastructure. Nothing. No shuls, no schools, no no, no, no Jewish day schools, no Jewish butcher shops, no Jewish infrastructure, nothing. No federations, no synagogues, no no bagel stores. (laughs) And what happens to that, to that, to that mass, to that, those masses? Alarming assimilation. Alarming. And that's very unfortunate. A lot of those Jews are, are lost from the people because it's been so long and they've been living as Gentiles for so long. So that's an example of that's an example of uh, the, the former as being part of God's master plan. So whenever we study Jewish history, we are always cognizant of this idea that we're not only studying a story. But we're looking at God's handiwork. Is there a question there? Okay, let's let, let's continue. Have anyone, any of y'all here, ever heard of the idea of six thousand years? Have you heard that? There's a six thousand year limit, or six thousand years, yeah. you know, yeah. from Adam. Now, importantly, whenever we talk about uh, dates and especially count Jewish years, so uh, the Jewish year that we're in right now is the year five thousand seven hundred seventy-five. Five seven seven five. That's easy to remember. Fifty-seven, like a Heinz ketchup, and then just the opposite, seventy-five. Or just remember it. So uh, yeah, we've all heard. We've all heard. So what does it mean? Six thousand. So it's important. What we are counting from Adam. That's when the clock starts ticking. What happened before Adam? Whether there are billion years before that? Whether six days before that? Whether there's thirteen point eight billion years? That we don't know. Uh, we have a description of six days of creation, and we have the sun being created on day four. So you have three days, the other this days, but there's no sun. Uh, and additionally, we have on these days an enormous amount of productivity happening. For example, Adam is created at midday on day six, so midday on Friday. And by Shabbos, so by uh, evening, he already, uh, Eve's created, they have mated, they have had a child already, multiple children, okay? They have already sinned with the, with the, with, with the sin of the, uh, the Eitzadahs. Clearly, that's more than just, you know, four or five hours of time you know, to have children, you know, and they're already walking on their own. Like, mm-hmm. So what does it mean? It, it's one of the great mysteries. Uh, but when we talk about uh, counting the years of, Jew, of, of, of Jewish history, we start from Adam, and, the, and thus we have 5,770 years when you add up all the years that Adam lived and Noah and Abraham to contemporary times. So... Yeah, so we have 6,000 years. So what does it say about 6,000 years and how is it relevant to big picture Jewish history? So the Talmud tells us, this is in the book of Sanhedrin. Everybody here familiar with the term Talmud? Mm-hmm. Talmud is a collection of books, uh, 63 of them in total, uh, comprising basically the collective wisdom, knowledge, law, philosophy, theology, everything of, all, of, of, of Judaism. 
Uh, it was originally compiled in a shorthand form, the Mishnah, uh, just comprising the laws, uh, by Rabbi Judah the Prince. Hear that name. Remember that name. In fact, if you open the Talmud, it says, Rabbi said so-and-so. He says, wait a minute, there's lots of rabbis. Which rabbis? Is it Rabbi Kim? Is it Rabbi Meir? Is it Rabbi Tarfus? Well, the answer, which rabbi is it? When it says rabbi, it doesn't say which rabbi. It means referring to Rabbi Judah the Prince because he, his contribution to Jewish continuity was so significant that the entire Jewish nation christened him as rabbi. He's the rabbi of the Jewish people. Thus, when it says just rabbi, it means Rabbi Judah the Prince. He authored the Mishnah. In the he codified the Mishnah in collaboration with 60 other rabbis, of, I'm sorry, a thousand rabbis, published with a thousand rabbis in about the year 200. Uh, and the Talmud in its entirety was compiled uh, by uh, Rabbi Rav Ashi and Ravina. This is in Babylon. This is called the Talmud Babli, Babylonian Talmud, about the year 500, along with Rav Ashi's son, whose name was Mar. So the Talmud tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, I believe it's um, 97, 98, somewhere around there. So it says, Shis Alfin Shana Hava. It's talking about the length of the world. How long is the world? How big of a of an exercise, an experiment are we talking about? So it says the world's for six thousand years. Six thousand year world, that's it. Two thousand, the first two thousand is called chaos. Tohu, chaos. First two thousand years is chaos. Uh, the next two thousand years, from the year two thousand to the year four thousand, is called Torah. That's the era, the epic, E-P-O-C-H. Uh, and the last 2,000 years is Mashiach. So what does this mean? So we meet a fellow by the name of Abraham. Abraham arrives the year 1948 from Adam. That's from the Jewish calendar. When Abraham is 52, he starts studying Torah. Thus, exactly the year 2000 marks the end of chaos. What does chaos mean? Confusion. What does confusion mean? Lack of clarity. What does lack of clarity mean? It means lack of clarity. It's a trick question. Right? There is 2,000 years of chaos. What's chaotic in the world? What's chaotic is the fact that the world is fundamentally flawed. What's the fundamental flaw in the world? What's lacking? What's not here? What's invisible in the world? What's the major flaw in our universe? God is not present. You can live your entire life, you're breathing, your heart's pumping 87,000 times a day, only because of God. Your body has this magic factory, magic machine called digestion which magically is able to uh, absorb all the nutrients and extract and take all the way. It's just magic, straight up magic. And it's all God's doing. Mm -hmm. And your liver is able to filter world-based filtration device. In fact, if you didn't have a liver, you drink a cup of coffee, you would just die. And you have a brain, most complex organ ever, which we can't even figure out. Even today, our, 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 our knowledge of the brain is so simple, so rudimentary. It's like the only thing we know about the brain is which parts are active when you're having experiencing emotions or thoughts. That's all we know. We talk about the medulla and this and the frontal lobe. They know nothing. They have no idea how it works. Literally. All we know that there's trillions of little connections. It's brilliant, you know. God. God everywhere. But God hidden. The world's flawed. The world's chaotic. Comes along Abraham. What does Abraham do? Abraham emerges in a world of paganism. In a world where people blatantly reject the idea of an invisible 
all-powerful, omnipotent God. Mm-hmm. And what does he do? He ends the chaos. He begins the process of fixing the world. We talked about tikkun olam. We heard that term by raise of hand, show of hand, tikkun olam. So some, yeah. So tikkun olam is a major Jewish idea. It means fixing the world. Mm-hmm. The world's flawed. Why is it flawed? Because God's not there around. Right? Us humans are also considered a world. Mm-hmm. Right? In Jewish in Jewish scholarship, the word olam katan means small world, and it's a reference to man. Human. When I say man, I mean mankind. Humans. We're also flawed because on a much smaller scale, we're we're an entire ecosystem, but we're also flawed because where's God? You know, we live your whole life with that, with, with rejecting that idea. So there's the personal, there's the collective, the global broken world. And it's broken until Abraham shows up. And what does Abraham do? He begins, he kickstarts the plan of fixing this world. So the, the 2,000 years of tohu of chaos end with Abraham starting to undo that, starting to repair, starting to fix. The idea, the radical idea at that time slowly gets a foothold with Abraham. What happens to the the entire chapter of human experience, of human history closes and the new chapter opens and that's Torah. We have 2,000 years of Torah, 2,000 years of taking the idea, the crucial idea of, uh, of, of monotheism, which is basically God's brain, right? Mm-hmm. And the greatest tool of connecting to God in the world. And that starts with Abraham. Abraham is able to learn Torah. How that, he, that happens is one of the great questions. Talmud, in fact, asked, from whence did Abraham study Torah? Remember, Torah was delivered by Moses at Mount Sinai many, many generations later. Right? Six generations, to be precise. Mm-hmm. So how does Abraham study Torah? Wait a minute. If Moses got the Torah, Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 20, I think. Yeah, 20, 20, chapter 20, Abraham appears way before that, hundreds of years, in fact, and he studied Torah. How did he study Torah? And in fact, Talmud tells us not only he studied Torah, he also studied rabbinic law. So of course, you can say, wait a minute, Abraham's a prophet. <laughs> Prophets, by definition, are spiritually rooted, thus do not have the same uh, uh, rigid, fixed, uh, 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 finiteness or rigidity <laughs> of 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 uh, of physicality. Mm-hmm. Thus, he's able. That's what a prophet means. Someone who's able to. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, not time lord. He's just he he tapped into his spiritual um, entity. An angel. Well, no, it's not like the matrix because it's not like the matrix because the, what's the problem with the matrix? The matrix is. Okay, let's stop here for a second. Here. <laughs> let's try to clarify some misconceptions. <laughs> yeah, but because the matrix was so dumb, like clearly the story, the metaphor for the story. So, well, let's clarify some misconceptions. If I were to appear in a Jewish court of law and say, "Gentlemen, God spoke to me. I'm a prophet." You know what they'll do to me? They wouldn't say, "Oh, tell us more." Let's hear what let's see what he told you. They would they would right away execute me. You know why? Because I'm a false prophet. False prophet get executed. That's right. So, wh- but wait a minute. But maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm telling the truth. How do we know that he's lying? The answer is because prophecy is not a lottery. We have this idea in common in, in greater society that anyone can be a prophet, right? It's it's luck of the draw, right? You know, if you happen to spin the triple seven, you're the you're the prophet. Whether or not you're someone who is 
worthy of that. So if Joseph Smith comes to us and says, hey, you know what? I spoke to the angel and he showed me the golden tablets in written form of Egyptian. Here's the Book of Mormon. Follow my religion. So he is able to uh, attract a large following. However, if he comes to the Jewish court law and he says, oh, uh, my name is Joseph Smith and the angel spoke to me and he showed me the golden tablets and written in form of Egyptian and here's the Book of Mormon. What would they say to him? Who are you? Why would you a prophecy? Prophecy is another stage of someone's growth. Prophecy is another stage of someone's ascension into spiritual greatness. And the more someone becomes spiritual, the less they become physical, right? Because it's a slide. You right? It's 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 a sliding scale. Thus, when someone becomes more spiritual, they become less inhibited by, let's say, the rules of nature. So we find in the Talmud these great rabbis that are able to harness the power of their spirituality and thus revive the dead, and it's not a big deal. No one even flinches. Many stories like that. Elijah uh, and Elisha, they revive, or Elisha revives the dead child. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Rabbi Pinchas Yerah splits, splits, splits the seeds. What's, and no one flinches. And no one stops, stops and says, oh, wow, this guy might, must be a deity. Let's, let's bow down to him because he was able to do some miracle. You know why no one flinches? Because the more spiritual someone becomes, the less the power of nature and physicality and the rules of physics yeah. ha- apply to him. So thus, they could, you know, have a communication with God. Why? Because they have a soul. The soul could easily have communication with God, it's just that it's hindered by the body. But the second becomes unhindered, untethered by the body, then you, what do you have? If it's completely untethered, then you have Moses. Moses descends, descends from the mountain, his face is shining like the sun. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Moses wears the mask. Why does Moses wear the mask? Because people go to look at him. Why can't they look at him? Because his face was as bright as the sun. Why was his face as bright as the sun? Because he reached the spiritual apex. On the Mount Rushmore of spirituality, there's one man. That's Moses. Why? Because he totally divested himself of any influence of his physicality. Thus, what was the only influence that he had? Only the influence of his soul. What is the soul? Well, the soul is pure spirituality. Thus, if you have a physical element, can you have a interface, sorry, an interface with the soul? Can you have an interface with the soul? Yes. Well, you can. Your soul can, but not your body. Your body cannot really. What is something in this world that we can't really have an interface with, but it's in this world? What is something that you could look at, but can't look at? The internet, the sun, <laughs> the sun, right? The sun's there. It's free for a look at. But try looking at it. You can't. Why can't you? Because the sun is is comparable to the idea of a soul. A uh, soul illuminates. The soul, uh, the sun illuminates, etc. Cetera, et cetera. There's lots and lots, a lot more to say. That we're, anyway, we're not doing justice to all these wonderful ideas. But just real quickly, I don't remember how we got off the topic of history. We'll try to retrace our steps in a second. <laughs> But that's Moses. So Moses suddenly has just the influence of, of his soul. No, no longer the influence under the influence of his body. Mm-hmm. What happens? The Jews try to look at him. Because they, as being rooted in their physical, they have no way to interface with, with Moses. It looks like the sun. You can't, you can't look at it. Mm-hmm. Thus, the fact that Moses, in the Talmud in, in Menachos 29b, is able to uh, have a vision of Rabbi Akiva, who appears 1,300 years later, Say, wait a minute. So you said time travel. It's not time travel. It's soul travel. The soul is not limited to time. The soul is also eternal. The soul is not finite. So, but all of us potentially have that that power as well. 
It's just that we have such an overwhelming influence of our, of, of, of our physicality that we can't even access the power of our soul. But should we be able to do that? We'd be like Moses. And Moses was able to just uh, fast forward 1,300 years, and he's suddenly sitting in the, in the, he's sitting in the, in the lecture hall of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva died in the second century of the Common Era. Moses has been dead for 1,500 years. How so? Because he had the power of the spiritual. Of the spiritual. That's what prophecy is, by the way. It's not just some magic, ta-da, I'm a prophet. Just, it just descended upon me, I won the lottery. No, it is a reflection of someone's physical and spiritual breakdown. We good here? So Abraham studies, I think we were talking about Abraham studying Torah, right? Yo, oh, so Abraham studied Torah. How did Abraham study Torah? Torah wasn't given until later. That's how we got there. See? That was interesting. We retraced our steps. Thank you. Uh, because Abraham was a prophet. Abraham had such a command of, over, of, of, his, of his physicality that he was able to access the power of a soul. Torah was no cinch. Right? Or is it cinch or no cinch? Is it, is it cinch or is it no cinch? It's really easy. Is it a cinch or it's no cinch? I don't remember. It's a cinch. Thank you. It was a cinch. No problem. Okay. So we... Uh, sorry? What do you mean? If it was a cinch or not a cinch? Sorry. Uh, but the... Ho- We're good. Okay. Excellent. So these 6,000 these six years... These 6,000 years are... Uh, are going to... Um, oh, yeah, so we have the first 2,000 years of chaos. Abraham emerges. That ends the chaos. 2,000 years of Torah. What happens at the end of the Torah? Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Judah the prince arrives, uh, and he writes, codifies the Mishnah, and then we have 2,000 years of Mashiach. So Mashiach, the word Mashiach is a, a hot-button topic uh, in, of course, in Jewish life. It's, in Jewish, uh, it's a central theme in, in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish consciousness, etc. One of the 13 principles of faith that Maimonides outlines uh, as being crucial for all Jews is one of the beliefs of the Messiah. Now we have 2,000 years of Messiah. So we typically think of the Messiah as an individual. Is that right? But here the Messiah is presented as an idea or as a theme for the last 2,000 years. So indeed it's both. Messiah is an individual, but it's an individual who's punctuating an entire idea that is taking 2,000 years to develop. And that is the full manifestation of Tikkun Olam, bringing it full circle, bringing the idea of God into the world, fixing the world. The world's flawed. Mashiach is the idea and the individual that are going to contribute to, contribute to closing this loop and uh, completing uh, that that needs to get done in order for the world to reach its conclusion. We good? Now, an important point. Is there a question there? We'll do as much as we can. And... Oh, yeah. So we have uh, what two hundred and uh, and no, it's a good question. Okay. So I'm writing something down here because you helped me remember that. Um, so let me tell you this cool idea, and this will bring us also full circle. So we find again in the Talmud the following. Quizzical statement. Now, if I ask you a question, I just throw a question on the board. But is Messiah going to come in a righteous, or as a result of a righteous Jewish people or a wicked Jewish people? What do you guys think? Of course, right? That that our righteous deeds, our righteous deeds will 
uh, will usher in the Messiah. Is that right? That's the typical, that, that's what we would think. We open up the Talmud. The Talmud tells us as follows. The son of David, which is always referenced for the Messiah, Messiah will only come in a generation that's entirely righteous or a generation that's entirely wicked. What it says is like this. Messiah will come in a generation that's entirely righteous or entirely wicked. What it's telling us, that the Messiah coming need not follow one specific cookie-cutter model. It could come in a generation that's entirely righteous, and it will come. It could come in a generation that's entirely wicked, and it will come as well. In fact, there are those that, that say, that postulate, myself among those group, that when it says in a generation that's entirely righteous or in a generation that's entirely wicked, what it actually means is that it's in a polarizing generation, a generation of extremes. You have some Jews that are extremely righteous. Mm-hmm. You have some Jews that are completely sold out, mm-hmm. right? Just not involved at all, completely assimilated. And that's a generation where you have Jews, you know, brothers in arms, so to speak, of fulfilling this wonderful mission that our nation was entrusted with. And some of them are totally sold. Uh, and some of, the, some of them are totally sold out. You know? So that's the generation that the Messiah is going to come. Could I say yeah, from, go ahead. Could I say from, uh, would it be appropriate to say from 48, when Israel became a nation? Yeah, what about it? That from the clock at that time, the generation would start. I mean, I'm just... Yeah, we don't, we don't know. Uh, what's clear about Messiah, no one has any idea. Anyone has any idea has been, thus been, been, been this proof. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous black hole to travel down Mm-hmm. to say, oh, well, I have proof, I have evidence. There's lots of different things, many of them are misleading. It's like, uh, well, I'm not going to say what it's like. But uh, it's, uh, it's an exercise in futility. The Talmud itself says it's an exercise in futility to try to decipher all the codes that seem to outline when Messiah is coming. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of information by way of codes and this and that and different things that seem to contribute uh, to, to ideas that may seem very plausible, but it's not, it's, not, it's an exercise that... Uh, uh, we are advised to not undertake because what happens if that time period elapses? You're like, oh, you give up, you know. Uh, um, Rachel, do you have your hand raised there? Um, Rochelle, <laughs> sorry. It's okay, um, but you can say Rachel. That's actually my name. That's my. Well, there you go, Rochelle. I apologize. Um, I was going to ask. Okay, so there's all these different. The one we're um, talking about different um, subscriber levels or whatnot. There's so many different ones that like. Kind of feel like their prophet was the Messiah. Are these people like, like when people talk about uh, not, um, not, not, not Manana, and the Nachmanan? Who's that? Nachmanan. Well, they say that that, that like little. Nah, 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 nah. Yes. Okay, so they don't claim that he's Messiah, and the only okay. in recently recent years we've had, let's say in the 17th century, we had. False messiahs like Shabtai Tzvi. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a false messiah that <laughs> literally derailed the entire Jewish nation for year, for centuries. You know, we're still suffering today mm-hmm. from the after effects of the false messiah. Uh, obviously, uh, JC is considered a false messiah. Uh, we have many messiahs. Uh, we have a Bar Kokhba, maybe a, perhaps an unrealized, unrealized potential of a messiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have uh, contemporary times where some, uh, some uh, Hasidim of the Lubavitch uh, movement uh, have. Mm-hmm. Have or claim to argue it overtly or covertly or clandestinely or out in the open that their that their Rebbe is the Messiah, 
Uh, in fact, there's been a, a Chabad tradition for centuries now that they're going to have seven rebbe's. The last one will be the Reb, bad. Last one will be Messiah. They used to sing Messiah, Messiah. Oh, he's Messiah. Then he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are those that still uphold to that idea. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not dead. This and that. We've been that down the road before of a Messiah who dies and suddenly he's not dead. He's coming back. It's not a new idea. So yes, um, there there have been uh, not Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. He's not an example. He's uh, he's an example of something else. He's an example of a Hasidic movement that doesn't have a leader and is still uh, is still channeling the lessons of the deceased leader. Uh, yeah, but uh, but the, this is an entire topic. I, if, and, uh, no, no, it's, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I appreciate that, and I would advise you. If you want to hear more about it, go to my website, rabbiwobi.com, and Google Messiah or Mashiach, and you'll find I have an entire class in it. All the details, all the prerequisites, everything you want to be Messiah, what you need to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, what are the accomplishments of Messiah? What are the, the different, yeah, like there's a lot, a lot of very interesting stuff. You know, some of the uh, history of the false Messiahs, very interesting stuff. So, uh, grandfather told me in his days there were over 200 Messiahs. That's I'm sure they've been, yeah. I think like in every street corner of Jerusalem is someone who claims the Messiah. <laughs> and we were, when we went home, uh, we asked, uh, he wasn't a rabbi, but we asked him a question. We asked him about uh, Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> and he told us we were together. And he said, we are waiting on our Messiah. When he comes, yeah, he's already here in Jerusalem, and we're waiting on him to reveal him. And we come. Yeah, but remember, like we said, Messiah is not just an individual; yeah. it's it's a, it's 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 an idea that has reached its yeah. full potential. Yeah. Thus, we have this idea of a Messiah, a potential individual who could be Messiah, but the community, the nation, has to be worthy of of that lofty uh, reality. So if, if someone who could potentially be Messiah, but it's an, he's unrealized because the generation is not worthy of it. I'm sorry? Well, well so that's, it, it's, right, so, uh, right, or not unworthy. So that, that, that's the next question. This is an also an example of how God manipulates history. So we said that it has to be a generation that's entirely righteous or entirely wicked. So the question is, wait a minute. Why, pray tell, does... Uh, does the Jewish nation in in their existence in being entirely wicked, how is that going to contribute towards Messiah? It doesn't seem, doesn't seem to make any sense at all, right? What, what does it mean? Like, if entire, the entire generation is wicked, well, why should that, why should that usher in Messiah? Why should, does it make any sense? So, uh, what's, what's the idea of Messiah? And what's the Jewish community's role in bringing that out? So, uh, let's start from the basics here. So, in, in, in Jewish, big picture Jewish history, what is our role? What is the collective national mission statement, the responsibility of the Jewish people? To be a light of the world, light of the nations, right? Or la goyim. We find in, um, in, in Exodus, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, we find elsewhere that we, we are a nation that's distinct, that's special. The word holy nation. Set apart. Set apart. Set apart. Uh, we're a holy nation. So we're supposed to be the models for all of humanity. 
we're still supposed to be set an example for everyone. We are supposed to be the moral guardians of the world. We're supposed to be the ones who teach the world about God. Mm-hmm. Continuing Abraham's uh, Abraham's wonderful idea of fixing the world mm-hmm. as our entire nation. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're going to continue his work. Now, how do we do that? How do we teach the world about God? By living being an example. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that, that, that's the best way to do it. The best way for us to teach the world, I need everyone's attention, it's a little bit of a, of a subtle point. Sorry, I didn't mean to wake everyone up from whatever. I apologize. No, I'm, you know, yeah. What years? We only have 225 years. Like a lot can happen in 225 years. Remember, what happened 100 years ago? How many Jews were living in Israel 100 years ago? 10,000. There's 6 million there now. Even in 1948, a mere 65 years ago, at the, found, at the founding of the state of Israel, how many Jews were there in Israel? Who knows? 600,000. That's right. Thank you. 600,000. There's 6 million now, a tenfold growth. A lot happened very, very quickly, you know, for good and bad. So, how are the Jews going to teach the world about God? You know how we're going to do it? In one of two ways. Either we're going to be distinct because we're the model, we're God's ambassadors to the world, we teach the world by our piety, by our righteousness, by our morality. We teach the world about God. Or should we choose to renege upon our commitment? Should we reject our special, unique character of being God's people? Should we say, you know what? We're not special. We're like everyone else. We're not chosen. We're just like everyone. What happens then? What gets awakened from the Gentile neighbors? Anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. That's the answer here. Anti-Semitism is God's way of ensuring, not with an I, with an E, to make sure that the Jewish people remain distinct. We will remain distinct whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. By hook or by crook, mm-hmm. come hell or high water, we will remain distinct. We have the choice if we're going to be fully righteous or fully wicked. The end result is Messiah. The end result is the entire world knowing about God. That's the result, regardless of how we do that. However, the path that we choose to get there can either be the path of total righteousness, and then we're the model. We're looked up to. We're the light to the nation. We're the kingdom of priests and holy nation. We're distinct. We're special. Right? We are it. We're the model. Or we could choose to say, you know, we're not special. And then who's going to make us special? What happens when a Jew says, I'm not special? The Gentile comes and says, you are special. We have a chilling example in very recently. And this, is, this was predicted. That's why it's not even such, it's not even such, a, such, such, a, such a surprise. Because it's again and again in all of Jewish history, same patterns. A Jew says, I'm no different. I'm not special. I want to assimilate. I want to be like everyone else. I don't want to eat kosher. I, I, I want to marry whoever I want. I want to be just like the Gentiles. So that was, in fact, established in a Congress in Brunswick in, 19, in 1844. They had a convention that they officially said, we don't no longer need to eat kosher. We can be like everyone else. We no longer need to marry Jewish. We can be like everyone else. We no longer need to be distinct. We're like everyone else. We're not special whatsoever. And a great commentator by the name of Rabbi Israel Salanter, he said that the Jewish people in Brunswick... Hath 
repudiated the Shulchan Arach, the Jewish code of law, they said, we're not special. We're not like everyone else. There is going to come a time where the Gentiles themselves will tell the Jews that you're special. And a mere uh, 90 years later, we have the Nuremberg Laws, where the Germans themselves say, Jews, you can't marry non-Jews, right? You're no, you are different. That's an example of the Jewish people being entirely wicked, entirely rejecting their mission, yet the result's the same. They're distinct. It's just, they have to unfortunately, sadly and tragically, go through the indignation, the pain, the suffering, the uh, just the uh, unspeakable uh, horror of, of, of the Holocaust. But the result is identical. Thus, Messiah is going to come. We have a final date, and we hope it will come even sooner. Right? We yearn for it every day. But the Jewish mission will be completed. It will happen. The destination is set in stone. That's going to happen. God's going to manipulate it to happen. However, what's in our hands? If it's going to happen, what's in our hands? Which path are we going to use to get there? Are we going to take the path of entire righteousness? We could do it just, and everyone will look up to us. We'll be the model nation. We'll be uh, admired. We'll be lauded. We will be the kingdom of peace and holy nation. Like the nations. Or, if we unfortunately do choose the other path, we'll get to the same destination as well. The Messiah, that idea, that reality, will be completed as well. However, it will not be as uh, 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 full of uh, uh, cream and pie and as excited and as pleasant as the other path. Uh, thus, big picture Jewish history, big picture of Jewish history, and uh, also kind of uh, how faith plays a part in that. We see this again and again. We, you know, we talk about the destruction of the first temple, structure of the second temple. All these major events are kind of bringing all out to this, to this, to this final end. Okay, I'll skip that. I'll skip that as well. We'll try and do some quickly here. Okay, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's the, the, the forebears of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we already mentioned Abraham, he it kicks off this mission. Right? This where the, uh, the mission uh, of, of, of teaching the world about God. That's very important. Abraham had two sons. What were the names of his sons? Isaac and uh, Jacob. Isaac, Isaac and Ishmael. Is that right? That's right. Now, who's Ishmael? Who's he the father of? Uh, uh, Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? The Arabs, that's right, mm-hmm. which are predominantly Muslim now. Mm-hmm. In, Jew- in big picture Jewish history, Maimonides writes, we look at the other great monotheistic religions, mm-hmm. our cousins, so to speak, the, uh, the, the Muslims, mm-hmm. as partnering with us, because they're also from Abraham. Right. They're also doing some of Abraham's work in teaching the world about God. Remember, Maimonides writes, you can walk into a, a mosque and pray there. No problem. You know why? Because they're not idolaters. They believe in the same God we believe in. They went a little awry in the application. The Muhammad Rasul Allah, that part, they went a little off. Uh, but the, their ideas on monotheism are Abraham's and the Jewish people. Same idea. Same idea. Now, Isaac, but Isaac is the one who's the Jewish nation. He, he's the one. Uh, God tells uh, Isaac, God tells Abraham, Yitzchak, Isaac will be your 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 uh, your legacy. Isaac had two children. 
two boys. They were actually twins. Mm-hmm. One of them's name was Jacob. The other one was Esau, or Esau in Hebrew. Esau is the father of Edom. Edom is the father of Rome. Rome begets the Byzantines, or the Christians. We look at Esau as being manifested by the Christians. Oh, Thus, that's the other half. That's, it's, exactly. That's also going to contribute towards this big picture goal. But obviously, Jacob is the one who uh, is, becomes the Jewish people. Right? We, we have the purest form. And we, you know, we are, we're still the chosen people. We have our comrades that are in cahoots with us. But you know, we are the ones. We are the uh, direct con- continuation of, of Abraham. Now, what happens to Jacob? How many kids does Jacob have? have? We know at least of 13. Because he had at least one daughter. Twelve yeah. sons. Yeah. These twelve sons, how many of them are comprised of Jewish people? Uh, All of them. Uh, the twelve Israel. tribes. I'm sorry? Okay. The twelve tribes yeah. of the Jewish people are from Jacob. Yeah. You want to get to Joseph's... Oh, you're getting too scholarly <laughs> no, here. No. <laughs> right. Now, thus we look at Abraham... Isaac and Jacob as being Abraham was almost perfect mm-hmm. in beginning the Jewish people. He had a little bit, he went a little off with Ishmael. Ishmael still kind of on the right track, but kind of veering a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Isaac as well. He has Jacob. He, you know, it's 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 he's honing his recipe, so to speak. It's a little bit, you know. Now you have Asaph as well. What happens to 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 uh, what happens to uh, Jacob? Perfect. All his kids comprise the Jewish people. Well, she's also part of the Jewish people. She doesn't have a tribe. No, she's part. Of, she she married, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what year does the Torah end? No, it's well, it's important just for argument's sake here. I'm not trying to say that the Torah is. Uh, I'm trying to defend the Torah. The Torah is immediately defended. However, the Levi didn't have a tribe either. One of the other sons didn't have a tribe either. Right, that's uh, right. Like like Frederick said. Uh, Joseph had two sons that that became the other tribe. So there was one of the brothers as well that never tribe. Yes, go ahead. I'm just curious, what, what year um, does the Torah end that's equal to the American year? About 225 years. So you can do the math. So oh, 2240 or something like that. 2240. 248. Oh, CE. Right, CE. Yeah. 2240. So now it's 2015. Add 225, and you have 2240. No, I mean, well, I mean, the current. Where does the last chapter of the Torah? Oh, where's the last chapter? Like, yeah. like the death the of last, Moses. Is that right? The last part, I think it's, th- yes, 1312 before the Common Era, I believe. Before the, before the Common Era. That's right. So we're talking roughly, uh, roughly, uh, well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, 3,327 okay. years ago. One time, but not that, not that long, I guess. Question. I'm sorry? Ephraim and Menashe. They are like Reuben and Shimon. Ephraim and Menashe, they're like Reuben and Shimon. They are... Um, right, that was just the sons of, of Jacob. That's right. right. That's right. Now... Jacob has another name. What's Jacob's other name? Israel. Why is Jacob called Israel, not and not uh, and not uh, not Abraham called Israel? Why was Jacob renamed Israel? Because Jacob was the one who is the fully baked recipe. He finally got it perfectly honed. 
Thus, his name becomes synonymous with the entire nation's name. Uh, now, where else do we find in Jewish history where you have two false stars and then you complete then it's then it's complete? Once again and again. We find first temple, what of the first temple? Got destroyed. Second temple, what happened to the second temple? In Jewish philosophy, we talk always about this third temple. And what's happened to this third temple? Is it going to be destroyed? Never. First temple corresponds to Abraham. Second temple corresponds to Isaac. Third temple corresponds to Jacob, to Israel, to Jewish people. Right? Again and again. We see this again and again. Uh, this idea, big picture, where uh, success doesn't follow us the first time we try something. And this is also a big idea for all of life. Uh, you try it, Abraham, good, not great. Or, or, or great, but not perfect. Isaac, same thing. Jacob, we perfected the recipe. Then now, three is the three time, yeah. third time's the term, right? Yeah. Now, God tells Abraham, your kids are going to be my nation. Your kids are going to be my nation. Chosen people, right? That obviously connotes that uh, God chose Abraham, when in fact, the opposite is true. Abraham chose God more than God chose Abraham. Because Abraham was the one who on his own, via the faculty of his own intellect, he deduced the idea of God, and he defended it, and he disseminated it to the masses. Thus, Abraham accepted the role of being God's spokesman. He chose that, and as a result of that, his descendants were chosen to be the people. When we talk about the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, attitude or the Jewish character traits, and we look at the Jewish people, even in America today, we're how many years away from Abraham? We're 3,800 years away from Abraham. And we find still today that if you look just statistics, the Jewish people excel uh, in rates that you know greatly belie their numbers. You know, twenty-two percent of all Nobel Prize winners, which not necessarily the best metric for success, but it's a good metric. You know, are Jews when the Jews comprise less than 0.2 percent of all society. So we so we are overrepresented in Nobel prizes and any metric you want to do in in, in medicine, in law, in, in in any of the sciences, in in, in entrepreneurs and technology and the top in the Forbes list, whatever you want to use for, for for excellence as a measure for excellence, you find the Jews all the way at the top. Where does that come from? What about us makes us so special? So this is something which is which has been discussed by a, by a lot of people. Uh, as um, as a question, you know what it, the the statistics don't lie. It's staggering. In Judaism, we say because we have the Abrahamic trait, the trait of not accepting what you see as a given, of coming up with an innovation, with developing an idea, with seeing things differently, of having the courage to go against the grain, of and defending that, despite the fact that people... Th- and we talk about entrepreneurs today. Well, what marks a great entrepreneur? Someone who says, I have a much better way of doing things. And everyone says to them, well, you're a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, you remember those names? Mm-hmm. They're the CEO, the CEO and co-founders of Google. Mm-hmm. Both of them are Jews. Shocking, right? Uh, what did they do? They had a new idea. And that's uh, to use an algorithm to search the web. Brilliant. Genius. 
And they said to they offered to sell. Listen to this, guys. Mm-hmm. So they came to Yahoo and said, Yahoo, listen, we have this wonderful, clever idea. It was called Back Rub at the time. Bizarre name. Back Rub. Can you imagine? Like a back rubber. Mm-hmm. That's what it was called at the time. They came to Yahoo and said, we want to sell to you guys just this clever idea for a million dollars. Anyone has any idea what Google is worth today as a public company? $384 billion. I think we could argue that was maybe a mistake for Yahoo to uh, say, uh, you know what? But this is an example, thank you, I'm interested. Uh, but this is an example, and we find this again and again in every area of excellence. Where is it from? We argue, according to uh, in Jewish, in Jewish uh, thought, it comes from Abraham. Abraham, uh, uh, he uh, expressed uh, this kind of determination, innovation, idea, development. He was driven. Us Jews, likewise, are driven as well. But remember, Abraham chose God more than God chose Abraham. Uh, Okay. God tells Abraham, your kids are going to be be slaves in a foreign nation. And then they will uh, emerge they will be redeemed with great wealth. So if you look at the exact point in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 17, verse 1, where God tells Abraham, okay, I chose you, because you chose me, but I chose you. Your descendants will be my people. You'll have the land of Israel. I'll give you the Torah, obviously. This is the nation that's going to complete what you began to go to love in the world. God tells him, as a prerequisite for this, your kids are going to be slaves in the foreign nation for 400 years, and then they will come out and be redeemed with great pomp and fanfare and wealth. Obvious question is, why is exile a prerequisite for the Jewish nation? God tells Abraham, your kids will be my nation. You'll have, you'll, you'll have it. However, first, you guys spend 400 years in Egypt, suffer, be uh, persecuted, and then they'll take you out with miracles and everything, and then you'll be my nation. I'll give you Israel and everything. Why does that have to be like that? It seems like. Go ahead. So, a lot of, a lot of different ideas are, are, are postulated to answer this question. So I want to share my idea here. If we look at the exile, we have the ten plagues and Pharaoh's humbled, and we have the plague of the blood and the frogs and the lice and the the, the animals dying and the, and the wild beasts and the uh, and the um, boils and then the hail and the uh, the locusts and the darkness and the death of the firstborn. Right? Seems like um, it's like a, it's, an, it's like Mike Tyson. You guys remember Mike Tyson in the eighties when he was fighting? He when he when he cornered them, he would pummel them. It seems like God is pummeling the Egyptians. Now, what happens to the Egyptians? They get their vein, they're gone. They're gone. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we, what's the point of beating a dead horse? What is the point of completely and utterly humbling and vanquishing the Egyptians? What do you gain with that? Just take the Jews out, pluck them out of Egypt. Mazal Tov, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Drop them down at Sinai, give them the Torah, bring them to Israel, that's it. Why do you have to have this entire year in Exodus of... Uh, of the plagues and the whole negotiation back and forth. So it says three times, beginning of Exodus, uh, it says, mm-hmm. that the Egyptians shall know that I am God. God, God rationalizes 
uh, with Moses, the reason why we will completely and utterly uh, decimate Mm-hmm. And uh, and 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 destroy the Egyptians and humiliate them and humble them is so the Egyptians mm-hmm. should know that I am God. Question: Who cares about the Egyptians? Is this all about the Jews? Isn't this part of the plan? Abraham, you kids, be Jewish, be exiled. Okay, we'll take you out. You'll have. Why is it about Egypt? Who cares about Egypt? Yeah. Well, clearly, but why? Huh? Okay, but so what do you gain by, by humbling them? So like this. So to answer all these questions, go ahead. Well, Esau's something, Esau's, that's, a, that's, a different, that's a different nation. That's Edom. That's something, that's something else. Well, would that be a part of Egypt? No. There's a different people. So uh, we have a slew of questions. Let's try to answer them. I, I, I don't expect you guys to remember all this. This is not on the final exam. Uh, but uh, it's a slew of questions. I'll try to answer them here. Uh, and whilst answering them, we'll try to remind you all the questions. So, like this. For us to be successful in our mission, we have to be crafted and honed, molded and formed into a very unique, specific beast. When I beast, I mean like that, in the figurative uh, sense. For us to be successful, the Jewish people, to be successful in our mission, we need to be a very specific kind of nation. A nation that is willing to be subjugated, to be subjected, to be restricted, to be withheld, to be, have obstacles, to have uh, uh, restrictions on our practice, on what we can eat, what we can do, what we can do, this, right? The Torah, you look at the Torah, what does the Torah have more than anything else? Restrictions. 365 things we can do. Right? We, what we can eat, what we can drink, who we can sleep with, where we can live, what, what we can, how we can, uh, everything. Details, 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 restrictions. That is by design, because that is going to enable us to fulfill our mission. However, in order to be willing to accept that, in order to be completely accept the dominion of God, we have to be formed into that kind of nation. God tells Abraham, your kids have to be prepared. They have to go through some sort of education, some sort of, uh, of, of boot camp to become ready for the big leaves. You know what that boot camp is? Egyptian exile. Exile is no fun. Slavery is absolutely no fun. Being a servant, being subjected to Pharaoh is no fun. But what does it teach you? It teaches you mm-hmm. that you are nothing. You are nothing on your own. You have to rely on your master for what you eat, what you drink, when, when and if you could sleep, what you could live, what you could do, everything. The Jewish people spent 400 years, or 210 to be precise, of living that kind of life. And what happens? Moses comes. Moses says to them, you know what? Why don't we leave? And got people, they're like, they, they were so down and out. They were so disenfranchised and disenchanted and discombobulated and discontent. And they said, we can't even imagine any other life. We were this idea, God, we talking to us. They were totally under the dominion of Pharaoh. What's going to happen now with the, with, with the uh, what's going to happen now with this nation? They're going to leave. What's going to happen to their loyalty? They're loyal to Pharaoh now. They're completely subjected to it. Mm-hmm. what's going to happen to this is that it's going to be 
transferred. That's going to be eliminated. This is the way God intended. It's going to be transferred. Now you are no longer loyal to Pharaoh. You're still loyal. You're loyal to God. Mm-hmm. How is that going to happen? You know how it's going to happen? It's going to be. It's going to happen where the Egyptians themselves mm-hmm. will recognize that God is in complete control. Thus, the ten plagues are humbling Pharaoh. Pharaoh will know that I'm God. What happens when Pharaoh knows? Everyone else knows as well. What happens to the Jewish people? They see Pharaoh being totally humbled. They see him being bombarded from every mm-hmm. angle, from every side. They see God's complete control and dominion. The first three plagues from the ground, from subterranean, right? The first two are from the water, and the next one from, is, from is from the earth. The next three plagues are all around us, right? Boils, mm-hmm. death of the animals, wild beasts. The next three plates are all from above, from the sky. Right? Hail rains down from the sky. It's dark, and uh, and the locust, locust flies. We know, we will know, and the covered the sky, cover the face of the sun. Thus, we see God is in control of what's below us, what's around us, what's above us. And then the final nail in the coffin is God is has the keys to death and life itself. This is a complete education to the Jewish people. It builds their faith profile on one hand, and they see the fallacies of Pharaoh's dominion. Thus, what happens to the Jewish people? So who is it for? Who is it for this subjugation of Pharaoh, this, uh, this, uh, this humbling of Pharaoh? It's for Pharaoh, but ultimately it's for the Jewish people, because now the Jewish people can emerge from this. They are ready... Uh, for the dance. They are ready to accept the Torah mere 50 days later. They have this attitude of accepting God as the power uh, that ought to be revered and no other power ought to be revered. They are ready to accept the Torah as the tool that's going to bring them to fulfilling this mission. Thus, it had to be prerequisite. God tells Abram, listen, there's got to be trade-offs, you know. There's no free ride. If you want to, if you want to accept this, you want to accept that your children will be my nation and going to fulfill the mission that you start, that you care about so deeply, that you are willing to give your life up on. You should know there's going to be a trade off. The trade off is going to be they're going to spend 400 years in a foreign land, and they will it will not be easy. But when they emerge, they'll be fully ready for combat, fully ready for faith, fully ready to fulfill this mission. Okay. Another idea that we find again and again in Jewish history. So we see Joseph, Joseph and the whole tragedy in Egyptian exile. And in, in, in big picture, we talk about four different exiles uh, in Jewish history. We have the Egyptian exile that we just mentioned. We have the uh, the Babylonian exile. Babylonians destroy the temple. They go to exile in Babylon for 70 years. We have the uh, the Persian exile, we have the Greek exile, uh, the whole uh, Hanukkah story. We have the Roman exile, which is the exile that we're still in today. Destroy the temple, send the Jews into, uh, uh, into disarray, uh, disassemble the Jewish central leadership, etc., etc. What's the idea with all these exiles? Why are we always wandering? How come the Jewish people can't just settle down? 
Why is it? The Torah tells us that it, this is by design. Yeah. Why? Again, we see Jewish history. Ah, the Assyrians come. We, uh, you know, the Jewish, the, ten, the, 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 the we, we lose the ten tribes. We have uh, the we're under the thumb of the Babylonians and the Persians. Uh, then the Greeks come in and they set up shop and they try to uh, influence uh, our ways. They uh, uh, cause much pain and suffering to the Jewish people. They're gone. The Romans show up and they uh, just attempt uh, to disassemble the Jewish people in its entirety. Hadrian in the year 135, as we all know. Uh, and then, and we're still today. We, you know, we go from France, and France in 1306 kicks us out. We go to England. 500 years we can't live in England. Yeah. Everywhere, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the uh, the Almohads uh, uh, come. They kick uh, Maimonides, our great protagonist. He he has to leave uh, in the year uh, uh, the year 1150. We're constantly go bouncing around from place to place. We never settle down. We're always in exile. What's that idea? Okay, so that's that. That well, I'm sure there's lots of answers uh, to that question. Some of the answers are like this: we have to be insular as a nation. We have to be distinct as a nation. Yet we have to have an interface with all the other nations. Remember, if we're going to affect change on a global scale, we're only 14 million people. Okay, there's basically one one Jew for every thousand humans. So insignificant that in the year 2000 in China, they made a census. They counted how many people live in China. As you know, we do a census every 10 years, right? And they came up to a huge number. Now, as we know, every time you make a, a huge census, you have a margin of error, right? Some people don't count, some people count twice, right? There's always a margin of error. So the margin is only 3 to 4%. The margin of error for the Chinese census in the year 2000, this is one of my favorite statistics of all time, what's the margin of error? Plus or minus 48 million people. Think about that. The number that they came to as to the number of how many people in China in the year 2000, it's a range of 96 million people. Think about that. Just, just stop for a second and think about that. Insane, right? Thus, you can fit seven times the entire Jewish nation into the margin of error of China. Mm-hmm. Yet, go to NewYorkTimes.com. How many stories do you find about Israel, about Jews? Tens. From today, we're on the front cover of every, of, 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 of every, uh, of every newspaper. Right? We're a big deal. How is it possible that we affect so much, so much of the global attention is, is placed upon the Jews, yet we're so insignificant? We own the newspaper. Well, maybe, but it's not all positive. Uh, it's, a remarkable, it's a remarkable thing. So the idea, one of the ideas is that we have had uh, our uh, fair share of of travels mm-hmm. throughout the world, we have made an impact on every society that we have encountered. Thus, we're in the consciousness, collective consciousness of everyone, the entire world. We have a microphone to talk. We have a platform to broadcast. We have the world's attention. We are a nation that's uniquely situated to affect global change. That's one idea. Once again, it falls very much nicely in line with the big picture. Additionally, if we are going to be, this is another idea, from, from the exact opposite venue, if we're going to be, if we're going to be the perfect ideal nation, if we're going to be the people that are going to change the world, 
we have to be a very unique nation. We have to be capable of uh, of of uh, amassing or collecting within ourselves all the positive attributes of the entire world. For it to be a perfect nation, why do we be a perfect nation? We got to be comprised of 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 perfect qualities. A nation that is remarkable because it demonstrates qualities mm-hmm. of of perfection. All the qual- we have to assemble amongst ourselves all the qualities of all the nations. Obedience. Thus, we spend a few hundred years in Spain. We acquire the positive character of Spain. God says, okay, your time here is done. You're out. Go to Morocco. Go to France. Go to Germany. (laughs) Go to Belgium. Go to England. Go to Russia. And amass. It's it's, it's like we're we're just taking the positive from all of them. And then once again, bring it all back into Israel. The entire nation comes back to Israel. What do you have? You have this eclectic mix, but that has within it all the positive qualities. Mm -hmm. Thus, our time in exile can also be learned uh, or viewed in Jewish thought as not being a way to influence, rather a way to be influenced from the people that we encounter. Okay, so um, how much time do we have, guys, here? Do we do, how far do we go? I'm sorry? <laughs> it's fine. I apologize. So should we go till nine, or should we stop here, uh, or go yeah. to nine thirty? Let's do ten more minutes. Let's do ten more minutes. Talk about some more significant. We didn't get. Uh, we, we still have many, many, many hundreds of years left to go. So like I said, we get some themes, but not all the details. Now the Exodus is very significant. The entire Exodus story. If you look at the Torah, the Torah spans. Uh, all the years from Adam, mm-hmm. even before Adam, till the death of Moses. The first book of the Torah deals with um, deals with uh, basically uh, three three thousand years mm-hmm. around. Uh, I guess two thousand years, okay. two or three thousand years, uh, twenty five hundred years, basically. Okay. The, the next four books, so that would be Genesis, is about 2,500 years. You would assume that Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy would also comprise 2,500 years. When in fact, from Exodus, which is from the second chapter of Exodus all the way to the end, is only 40 years. That's it. 40 years. So, clearly what the Torah is telling us is that the lessons that we could take from those 40 years are so dense and so unique and so spectacular that we're going to tell it to you in such detail. Whereas the preceding 2,500 years, uh, you can subsist with with one book, the book of Genesis. Uh, We find the Exodus. What happened to Jewish people the Exodus? So they left Egypt. Okay, where they go? They had the the splitting of the sea. We know that story. Mm -hmm. They go, they split the sea. Fine, fantastic. They continue. They go to Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. They encamp. Uh, on the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, on the first day of the second month mm-hmm. of the first year of, ex- of of their exodus. What happens at Mount Sinai? What's major, significant event happens at Mount Sinai? Moses. Uh, that's why they got the law. That they didn't so Moses, I have Mo. I said Moses. We have a lifting mountain. We have Moses. We got the law. What happens? So you're all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're also right. You're also right. However, many, many, many people have, instead of reading the book, watched the movie. 
Always a mistake. Got to read the book. <laughs> what actually happened was an event that has never before happened and never happened since. A, a singular event, one-time event in all of human history. And that is what's called national revelation or collective prophecy. The Jews out to the mountain, they prepared for a couple of days. Moses goes up to heaven, goes up to the, goes up to the mountain. What happens? You said the mountains, the flame, all this of uh, striking visuals uh, that 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 happens as outlined in Exodus chapter twenty and uh, Deuteronomy chapter four, which mm-hmm. repeated twice because it's so significant. They experience prophecy. Who's they? Everyone, every man, mm-hmm. woman, and child. Now you you say, Rabbi, wait a minute. You told us a little bit earlier. Prophecy is not given dispensed like candy or gumballs. Mm-hmm. You something you got to earn. This is the exception. This is the time where everyone, all of them, man, woman, child, the Talmud goes as far as to say that even children in utero mm-hmm. says, no, you got to know how to decipher Talmud. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. Don't think of it in the simplistic sense. It says that the women's, uh, the women's uh, stomach became like glass and that even the children in utero had prophecy. Does that mean that it became glass and you punched it with a knife? If you took a if you took a hammer to the glass, it would shatter. No, but it means that this uh, experience was shared by everyone and everything. There are there are Jewish sources that talk about the souls, even souls that are have yet to been born, uh, to experience that as well. This is an exception to the rule. This is a time where temporarily the entire nation is granted the spiritual. Uh, ability to accept prophecy. And what do they hear? They have the Ten Commandments. And they freak out, they die, and they're brought back to life. A lot of details happen. But this is an event that is the most significant event in all of human history. I'll explain to you why. It's significant because, like I said, it's the only time it's ever happened. So what? So what happens if you see prophecy? What happens if you see prophecy? Pretty remarkable, right? Tell your kids about it, right? What happens was that no longer are we believing Moses that he's a prophet because of his own personal activities. From now on, we believe Moses subsequently, he's a teacher of the entire Torah. From then on, he's a teacher of the entire Torah. We believe him. This is the word of God. We have the book, the Torah. We can all hold the Torah now. How do we know that Moses is a true prophet? Maybe he was a charlatan. Maybe he's a snake oil salesman. How do we know he's not lying? All of them experienced prophecy alongside of him. All of them heard Moshe Moshe come up to the mountain. There was no doubt. It was absolute clarity. In order to achieve that clarity, remember, when God does things, he does them well, does them perfectly. When God's giving the Jewish people of Torah, it's going to be in a way that's going to survive everything. No matter how much chaos you throw at the Jewish people, Torah will survive. Jewish people have faced more chaos than any other nation by uh, orders of magnitude. Yet we're still around and we're growing and vibrant. Why? Because that's the way God set it up. It's going it's to be impervious to any challenges. The way for it to, the only way for it to succeed is if, is if there's absolute clarity from everyone. Moses is a true prophet. God really exists. This is real. This is true. This is not a bunch of baloney. Right? And also, importantly, this is not false. false. It's impossible to falsify it. Us, you know, we're working 20, you know, 3,300 years afterwards. So we say, wait a minute, how's, how do we know the Torah is true? How do we, we can ask those questions, those are legitimate questions uh, that a lot of people have asked. Yet, we find that all of the religions, all of them, share a commonality. And that is, religions start 
with revelations. How do you start a religion? So if you want to start a religion, idiot's guide to start a religion, you have to have a revelation. That could be Joseph Smith in the mountains of New York saying or mm-hmm. claiming, alleging, that uh, an angel came to him and gave him this golden tablets that no one's ever seen, written in reformed Egyptian, a language no one's ever heard of, and he translated them into the Book of Mormon. That's a revelation. Who experienced that? Allegedly. One guy. Muhammad, one guy. Paul of Tarsus, one guy. Every religion, one guy is an experience convinces the masses. Religions begin with revelations. Mm-hmm. All religions begin with, with revelations. The Jewish people also begins with revelations. However, the revelations that happen to the Jewish people happen not to one man who convinced a group of followers, it happened to the entire nation. And that is something which is impossible to falsify. There's no way I can convince you something you didn't see. There is no way for the Jewish people to accept Moses, accept the words of Moses, and we're still fulfilling the laws of Moses. On that door, there's a mezuzah. Where's the mezuzah from? From the book of Moses. There's no way the Jewish people would have perpetuated the Torah if they were not entirely convinced that it was 100% true. And in it, it describes in detail this experience that everyone must have had or else they would not have accepted it. And in fact, the Torah goes out on a limb. And I want you to read this. If you read one thing uh, in, in Deuteronomy, Mm-hmm. One verse, go to chapter 4, verse 32 and 33, it's two verses, mm-hmm. where it calls this out and makes a prediction, a bold prediction, that will send chills down your spine. Probably not. But it will, if you think about it, uh, it, will, it will call to attention the, what's just the remarkable nature of this event. It says, <laughs> God challenges you. I want you to go from one end of the world to the other end of the world. From all of human history, has, there ever, has this ever happened, or has it ever been claimed to have happened? God's telling us that national revelation, national prophecy, has never happened, besides for this one event, and no one will even claim to, that it would have happened. The Torah is saying, we are so confident this is a one-time-in-all-of-human-history in event, that if it does happen again, we take the Torah and scrap it. We know it's not true. We know it's not true. Full confidence. Because why? The Torah says it'll never happen. And now, for the payoff. How's everyone doing? Doing well? How are you? Fantastic. Let's assume the Torah was written by men. For argument's sake. For a collection of men. Really clever, we could assume, right? Really clever people. They concocted a story. They fabricated a hoax of national revelation. Yet, the very same authors write that it'll never happen again. They were clearly intelligent. If they did it on their own, if they fabricated it on their own, they know it can happen again. Thus, why would they easily falsify their own work where they clearly intended for it to be believed as what it claims to be, the word of God as dictated to Moses? Why would they say that nothing like this will ever claim to be have happened when they themselves know that they perpetuated this own myth on their own? Thus, the only conclusion that we can draw is that indeed it did happen, and the reason why it was never claimed to have happened by any other nation, especially a nation that wants to, or any religion that wants to claim legitimacy, you know, why would you say it was only one guy, let's say 10 guys, or 100 guys, or, 50, or 500 guys, or 500,000, or 600,000, adult males, which is what the Torah claims. We see a tremendous amount of females, plus children, we have at least 1.8 million people uh, if we disinclude adults over the age of 60. If you want to compensate for adults, then it could be any number above 2 million, probably. That's what the Torah says. 1.8 million people up to the age of 60 experience this event. It's impossible to claim this unless it actually happened. 
Thus, national revelation. This experience is so significant. We touch it on the mezuzah every day. We wear it in our tefillin every day. We say in the Shema twice in the twice every day, once in the morning, once at night. We declare it every Shabbat. It is the the, the foundation of all the holidays because this is where we know we are right. This is our evidence, and this we retouch this at every point because this revelation. We know that Moses is a true prophet. We know that God really exists, and we know that the Torah is real. Uh, okay, so we got a we got um, oh another cool cool just nice a cute little addendum. We'll stop at this cute sorry cute little addendum to this. Moses is called the father of all prophets. Mm-hmm. Father of all prophets. Mm-hmm. Why is Moses called the father of all prophets? I'll tell you like this: If Muhammad Muhammad the uh, merchant came to us and said, "Hey, I'm a prophet," mm-hmm. what do we say to him? One guy. What if you're lying? How do we know you? Maybe you're not lying, but maybe you are lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was Moses' daddy, right? Uh, Joseph Smith, or Paul, or any prophet, or self, self-proclaimed prophet. Mm-hmm. We say, well, we weren't there. We have no idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moses is a verified prophet. Mm-hmm. If Moses was on Twitter, he would have the blue check next to him. Verified. Mm-hmm. He's a verified prophet, right? right. Someone's laughing there, right? There, there, someone's on Twitter, <laughs> right? Moses is a verified prophet. If Abraham came to us, and Abraham mm-hmm. says, you know what, I'm a prophet, what would we say to him? If we were intellectually honest, we would say to him, how do we know you're right? How do we know you're right? How do we know? Every prophet that comes to us and says, I'm a prophet, if we are logical skeptics, which we are, we say, I don't know if I can believe you. I don't know if I can believe you. Maybe you're lying. <laughs> Moses is a verified prophet. Thus, Moses is the father of all prophets because we only believe in Abraham as a prophet because Moses told us. We only have Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, etc. because Moses told us. Not in the record. In the record, they're no different than Muhammad, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, thus, and even subsequent uh, prophets, Moses lays the groundwork of who can fit in this category. So Samuel, the prophet Samuel, we consider a prophet. Why? Because of his own record? No. Because mm-hmm. Moses told us these are the qualifications of a prophet. Samuel fit the bill. Thus, Moses posthumously told us Samuel's a prophet. Moses is indeed the father of all prophets. Let's stop here, guys. Um, yeah, we got uh, pretty far, but not far enough. We have part two coming next, uh, next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Is that right? This one. This upcoming Wednesday. Uh, fantastic. I hope you all 